So today marks the first week in a three-week sermon series on our new vision statement. We envision a world, that's today, where every heart experiences, that's next Sunday, God's transforming love. We envision a world where every heart experiences God's transforming love, a three-week series. Now, it took a lot more than three weeks to come up with this. It actually started a couple years ago with our Conversations with Nate listening campaign, and over 400 of you participated in that campaign. And then the strategy team boiled down the feedback that we received from you, the hopes and dreams you had for our church, came up with this statement, offered it to the session, and now the session offers it to you and hopefully becomes part of our culture. We envision a world where every heart experiences God's transforming love. That's part of why this sermon series is taking place. And the strategy team continues to study and to listen to the congregation as we imagine what it will look like to bring that statement to life. Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears and give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard, as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe, and believing obey. Amen. So I mentioned that the strategy team is doing some studying, and one of the books that we're studying is a book called The Source of Life by a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann. Actually, my favorite book on theology, if you're interested in picking it up, it isn't a long read, but it's called The Source of Life, and it's Moltmann's interpretation, his theology of the Holy Spirit. It's his theology of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about how he comes to this theology of the Holy Spirit through his experiences of being a soldier in World War II. He says that my Christian faith began with a despairing search for God and a personal struggle with the dark side of the hidden face of God. He says, at the end of July 1943, as an Air Force military auxiliary, I experienced the destruction of my hometown, Hamburg, through the RAF's Operation Gomorrah, and barely survived the firestorm in which 40,000 people were burnt to death. He says, the friend standing next to me at the firing predictor was torn to pieces by a bomb that left me unscathed. He said, that night, I cried out to God. For the first time in my life, I cried out to God, and I said, my God, where are you? And the question, why am I alive and not dead like the rest, has haunted me ever since. Why am I alive? Why am I alive? Is, isn't this a question for all of us? I think it's a question that our confirmands hope that the church will help them to answer. Why am I alive? On this day, on this particular day, on this piece of ground, 
Why am I alive? I wish it was a question that more people were asking of themselves. I hope it is a question that churches will ask of themselves, that our church will ask of itself. Why are we alive? It is a question that the disciples were asking of themselves on this day, here in John chapter 21. Not that they come up with some great answer, but by the time we meet up with them today, Peter has been to the tomb and he's seen the linen cloths laying there by themselves. Mary has met Jesus in the garden and mistaken him for the gardener. Thomas has seen Jesus and put his fingers in his scars. It's been a pretty busy few days for the first followers of Jesus. Now one might assume that this is when the church began to be formed. Nominations were held, elders were elected, pastors got their robes, confirmands were confirmed, right? This is when the church began to start. But no, in fact, the birthday of the church, Pentecost, isn't for 50 days after the resurrection. And the church as we know it, with all the hierarchy and organization, is several hundred years really after that. So surely then, here, following the resurrection, surely this must be when the Gospels were written. When the disciples huddled together and started to write everything down. Take down the quotes, get the story straight. But actually, the first Gospel written, the Gospel of Mark, isn't written until another 30 or so years after this story. And the chapter that we read today, John chapter 21, is probably another 30 or 40 years after that. Everyone thought Jesus was coming right back. And so what was the point of writing anything down? What about the building, though? That's what they must be doing that day, is they've got to get a building going, because, of course, you need a building to have a church. And they've got to get permissions from the county, and this takes a long time. You may as well get started on these things, right? It did take a long time to get the first building. The first church building that we know of is a building called the Dura Europas Church in Syria now. And it was a house that was converted to a church in the early third century. So they didn't, they didn't hold nominations. They didn't start writing the Gospels. They didn't even get a building going. Why were they alive that day? Why was the very first church alive that day? Peter takes a look at his closest friends and he tells us why. He says, I'm going fishing. We've got a lake. This is convenient. I'm going fishing. You guys ready? Let's go. Let's... No? Nobody brought their poles. That is why they were alive that day. Now, almost everyone wants to criticize Peter and the other disciples for going fishing because they should have been doing other things. They were criticized about going back to their old ways after the, the most momentous occurrence in the history of the universe happened, the resurrection. Today's scholars are particularly difficult on those disciples for going fishing. N.T. Wright laments 
that they just wanted to get on with their life. Edwin Hoskins calls it a complete apostasy and abandonment of Jesus. Dale Bruner critiques them, saying that in times of crisis or loss or fear or uncertainty, we grasp for what we know to be sure. Bruner remembers sharing this position in a church Bible study and a woman coming up to him afterward and saying, yes, but the disciples have to eat too. Jesus would agree, it seems, because Jesus, the scholars should have noticed, Jesus doesn't scold the disciples for going fishing. In fact, when Jesus stands on the shore just after daybreak, and he sees them out there flailing at this work, catching nothing after a long night of fishing, he calls out to them and he uses a diminutive term. We hear it translated as friends in today's scripture passage. But Gail O'Day suggests it conveys familial intimacy. In the Greek, it's paideia, which means little children. It's the same word used when Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And so when Jesus sees them out on, when from the shore, out on the lake, out on that sea fishing, he doesn't say, hey, what are you guys doing out there? You're supposed to be praying in an upper room. You're supposed to be getting the church going. He says, little children, you have no fish, have you? He says, I know you've been dropping that net on that side of the boat all night. And I know you're probably tired of it. You've been churched that way since the sun went down. But drop that net on the other side and see what happens. Drop that net on the other side. You've been doing church this way for a long time, but drop that net on the other side and see what happens. And it turns out that listening to Jesus is more important than doing things the way we've always done them. because they catch 153 fish, which is quite a number, especially since the whole night before they'd caught all of zero. They caught 153 fish. What does that number mean? 150, that's an interesting number, 153 fish. And a lot of people have a lot of theories about why it's 153 fish. Some people say there were 153 species of fish, and so this represents that they caught every single kind of fish when Jesus told them to put the net on that side. Some people say it was 153 fish. They counted the fish, and that's how many fish there were. If you go online after church and you Google why 153 fish, you will actually find a lot of really interesting answers connected to numerology. You can spend the afternoon doing that if you think that's a good use of your time. (laughs) But what I want to say today, and I hope this is enough, is that 153 fish is a lot of fish, and it's more fish than those disciples and their families could eat on their own. 153 fish is so many fish, in fact, 
that they would have to go out, move out from their circle to find people to help them to eat it all, or they were going to end up with quite a mess. Jesus had a vision that was bigger than the disciples. A vision that was bigger than the people that were already on the boat. Bigger than meeting the sustenance needs of the inner circle. A vision that he forms and fuels if only they will follow. They are alive. Why are they alive? They are alive to put hands and feet on his vision. That's why we're alive too. We are alive to put hands and feet for that vision that Jesus has that's bigger than the people on the boat. Which is why when you hear that first phrase of our vision statement, it doesn't say, we envision a church. We follow in the way of Jesus and say, we envision a world. We are alive today to put hands and feet on that vision a vision fueled by a Jesus, a Savior, who continues to fill the net. Fill it so much that we are forced to go outside and say, hey, can I share some of this with you? Can I tell you a little bit about who fills my net? Can I show you the abundance that I have experienced because I'm connected to a community, I'm connected to a God that keeps promises. So why are you alive today? Church folks are not alive to fill pews. Church folks are alive to empty pews for the sake of the world. You are alive for the sake of the world to bring that love of a full net wherever it is that you live and to the people that you encounter. That's why you're alive. It is for the church, as Jürgen Moltmann reflected on his own life after that bombing in World War II. He says, life is good, but being a survivor is hard. The people who escaped probably all saw their survival not just as a gift, but as a charge, too. Now, I don't know if you know this, but not all churches are surviving. But you're alive. That's a gift. But it's a charge, too. You're, you're alive. Not just for your own survival, the net's too full for that. The world is hungry, and we have something to share. So let me close with two quotes. Not how I usually close, but I think they're important. And they're quotes from two people who no longer have the luxury of asking, why am I alive? Both have died recently, but their legacies will live on. First, a man named Peter Pretorius. 
a man who started Jesus Alive Ministries, an organization that would feed the physical and spiritual needs of African children. With over 1.2 billion meals served, he writes in his book, the truth is that all of us can be used as God's instrument of love. We are his hands as we respond to his heart. Not all of us are called to go into the darkness of Africa, but we are called to make a difference for others in this world. And finally, Rachel Held Evans gets the last word today. A Christian author and thought leader that changed many lives, and more importantly, a young mother of only 37 years old who died yesterday. She invites us to imagine that we are alive because this right here is what God's kingdom is like. A bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table. Not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry because they say yes. Amen.